A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. That was a great time for me because the NBA actually started to open its doors to really respect Europe. I was in France at the time playing very well and kind of adapting and figured that France would be the place that I would probably finish my career. I remember the hype. I remember everyone recognizing more than just the Los Angeles Lakers, the Boston Celtics, or the beginning of the Chicago Bulls era. I remember that. NBA basketball was becoming very popular all over the world. And I was actually doing some stuff promoting basketball in France and working with the NBA with three-on-three tournaments and staying in Europe longer instead of going straight home after the summers at that time. That was a great time for basketball all over the world. And people started to recognize European players as well in America. It was a special moment. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. We're all getting first time thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 58. Thanks for joining me. Stay up to date with my monthly email newsletter. You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes, future high-profile guests to appear on the show, and much more. Simply visit inallairness.com slash news. Today, another great guest, Terence Stansbury, visits the show. I'll preface this conversation with a simple statement. This is one of the best episodes of the podcast yet. Show notes for this episode, including links to numerous topics we cover in this chat, can be found at inallairness.com slash 58. Now, on to the show. My guest today starred at Temple University. He was named the Atlantic 10 Player of the Year in 1984. He played three seasons in the NBA, also finishing third in three consecutive slam dunk contests. He then moved overseas and played professionally in Europe, where his contributions to the game are vast. He's a member of the Temple University, Delaware Sports, and also French Basketball Halls of Fame, to name a few. Terence Stansbury, thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot, Adam. It's great to be here. I appreciate you taking time to chat with me today. Now, in amongst the considerable list of accolades to your name, you were also Delaware High School Player of the Year in 1980. When did you first play organized basketball? I first played organized basketball uh, in Los Angeles in high school there. It's funny that I, I played on a team that wasn't even the top team. It was like the B team. <laughs> All right. Uh, because for three years prior to leaving um, – elementary school between 13, 14, 15, I couldn't even make a basketball team in, in Delaware <laughs> where the level was much less than when I went to LA and played. And I got cut the first day, three years in a row. So I just played on the playground with my friends at the YMCA at local community centers. Um, and then of course, uh, in the parks. 
just enjoying the game because I love to play. And being on a team was an objective, but even though I didn't make it, it, it wasn't a problem because I could still play freely. So I enjoyed it. When I made the team in LA, it was a coincidence. While I was re- enrolling in school, I happened to run into the, the basketball coach the day I was enrolling because I was transferring from, from LA. Mm-hmm. And he, he didn't recognize me as a kid and he thought I was tall. I wasn't actually tall, but he, he asked, did I play basketball? And I said, yes. And I explained to him, I'm from Delaware. And then he laughed in my face and said, Hey, there are no basketball players from Delaware. You said you play basketball. <laughs> And I said, yeah, we had basketball players, even though I knew I wasn't one of them, <laughs> which was a funny story. I, I was thinking about the guys who I idolized, who I wanted to be like in my hometown of Wilmington, even though I couldn't make the teams. And uh, he asked me to come out and he was actually the chemistry teacher also there, my chemistry teacher when I enrolled in school. I made the team and it was an undefeated team. And I ended up being the most outstanding player that year. And then I moved back to Delaware and things changed. I, I played on a a very, very, very good high school team and made third team all state the first year in Delaware. And then the next year, I actually became the player of the year. <laughs> so it was a strange story. Yeah. But I did grow like seven inches and about 30 pounds in a year and a half. That always helps. <laughs> but I was still playing guards in LA and in Delaware. I had to play the forward and jump center. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you're a jack of all trades. I wasn't actually. It was, it was strange. And then I got moved to the point guard in my senior year because. The team was doing okay, and I, I started to play really well and had some statistics. In my junior year, I, I went to a basketball camp, the only one I went to, which was a John Cheney basketball camp, Sunny Hill camp, outside of Philly. And I was the most valuable player from Delaware that no one had ever heard of. <laughs> so <laughs> it was it was strange. I went to Philadelphia with all these great players, and, and I ended up being a valuable player, and no one heard of me. And, of course, just because I just moved back from L.A. the year before, and I hadn't played actually in my hometown at all for three years. Uh, some recruiters started to come see me play, but I was playing forward and center. And then John Thompson had actually heard about me from someone from Georgetown. And when he came to see me play, he just told people, yes, he's a nice player, but he's not a, a division one guard because I was playing forward and jumping center. And I wouldn't be able to play division one basketball. Next day, my coach said, okay, we're going to make you the point guard. <laughs> <laughs> So I played point guard, <laughs> and then I became the player of the year and the leading scorer in the state, and that's how it really started. That's exactly the story that happened, all because of John Thompson and my great high school coach realizing that a basketball player is a basketball player, and in those days it wasn't about positions, and he, he knew that I could play every position, <laughs> so it was strange. Wow, so you're very versatile, and that's a really a fascinating story there as to how it all sort of began for yourself. And just a moment ago, you were talking about some of the players that you admired when you were growing up. Were there any particular college or pro players that were on your radar that you really looked up to? Oh, well, um, in high school, you know, I looked more to the pro game than I did the college game because we were we were fortunate enough to have the Philadelphia 76ers nearby in Delaware. You have Dr. J. Uh, we had World Be Free. We had – it was so many players on the East Coast, and I was a fan of the Knicks, New York Knicks of the 70s as a kid, which was one of my first teams. I also liked the Washington Bullets because they had Clyde Frazier. I loved Pistol Pete Maravich. You know, when we saw him play on the playground, I always try to do the things that he did. I was kind of an old, old school guy as a kid because that's what we saw at that time. In the university, even though it was big in the States, the thing that we saw the most and was important to us in our area was the Big Five basketball. Philadelphia Big Five basketball was was everything to us. Temple LaSalle, St. Joe's, Villanova, all those schools playing at the Palestra which is a, a unique place in America even today. 
if these teams ever play against each other in the palestra again. So I watched professional basketball and I watched Philadelphia local basketball because we had so many talented players in the area. Michael Brooks from Philadelphia, uh, Gene Banks from Philadelphia, Wilt Chamberlain, of course, who I met from Philadelphia, Earl Monroe from Philadelphia. Even I was coached uh, in the summers uh, when I was in university two, three years in a row by Jellybean, Kobe Bryant's father. Oh, wow. I was coached by guys like that. And I was actually coached in high school uh, when I was preparing for university by uh, Teddy Blunt, who was the starting point guard of uh, Winston-Salem University, who was the guy who was playing in the star before Earl Monroe became a star at Winston-Salem. Winston-Salem's first year, when, he, when Earl Monroe didn't play his first year, the guy who was playing in front of him was a guy who actually coached me when I was in high school in the summers. Some great names you've mentioned in amongst there. And you starred at Temple University, particularly in your junior and senior seasons, where you averaged better than 21 points and four rebounds a game. In a moment, I'd love to discuss your last two college games. But overall, how was your experience playing at Temple? It was life-changing. It was amazing. Uh, I remember as a freshman going in and being offered a, a scholarship, I actually couldn't believe it was possible because a year and a half ago, I, I couldn't even envision myself in a university, hmm. let alone on one of the most prestigious teams in college basketball history. Uh, when I got there, I was really overwhelmed and proud and surprised and, and eager and willing to just be on the team and keep a position on the team, uh, considering I'd only been on the team for like three years prior to that. Uh, once I had an opportunity to play, Don Casey, who was my first coach, and Jim Maloney, who recruited me, along with Jay Norman, it was a great environment for any kid, whether you were a star or just an average player who loved basketball. We were treated with respect. The university people were, were wonderful for us, inviting us in from kids of all backgrounds. And we did have success. Uh, my junior year, it changed because the last two years we brought in a new coach. John Cheney was my coach the junior year from Cheney State, and he ended up being the Hall of Fame coach to the years today. I was fortunate enough to be there his first year at Temple and play for him for two years. But this is a special person when it comes to basketball. I mean... You gain so much knowledge about the game from this guy, and he cares about his players so much, and his passion sometimes is taken the wrong way. But if you ever play for this guy, you realize that if you ever meet someone that you think knows everything about the game, then you met him. He gave you so much confidence when we played that even if you struggled, he made us believe that he could step on the court and win the game for us. <laughs> it was an amazing feeling. you know. It was really, really something that's hard to describe. It's one of those situations where... People talk about great, and they use the word great too much today. And when you're in his presence and you're around him, if you spend a few months with him, because it takes time to really understand what's going on because of his approach at times, you realize that you're in a special place and you'll never forget it. Yeah, it sounds like he's had a great impact on your life. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. As a junior, you averaged almost 25 points a game. Was there ever any thought that you'd consider turning pro after that junior season, or were you always planning to stay for your senior campaign as well? In those days, we didn't look at the NBA the way the kids do today. It's uh, another mindset. It was a different different way of seeing yourself. Um, for myself, we had a, a very talented team that was not complete, and three key players were hurt most of the time. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that I was at Temple that we struggled until we came together at the end. If you were a junior today and your top seven score, of course you're looked at as a potential lottery pick. Yep. But you got to remember, I was there before the lottery happened. <laughs> this was before the lottery, actually, a couple of years before they created the lottery. And I wanted to play with my teammates and make the NCAA tournament. In those days, only 32 teams made it. My first two years, we were invited to the NIT, even though we were in first place in our 
another conference, which was in the Atlantic 10, but we lost in the playoffs. So we didn't go to the NCAA because they took only the champions of our conference. And then 16 of the teams played in the NITs in postseason. So we played in the NIT two years. My junior year, when I had my best year, we didn't make a tournament. So I wanted to come back because the entire team was coming back the following year. We were fortunate enough that every player on the team would be back the next year. And we had one new scholarship that we were giving out. Temple had left. And fortunately for us, John Chaney chose Nate Blackwell, who was the player of the year in Philadelphia, uh, another talented player who had a great career at Temple. And with that team, we ended up being one of the best teams in America uh, the following season. That's great too. Just before we get to that senior season of yours, I believe that in 1983, you trialed with Team USA for a spot on the Pan American Games squad that ultimately won gold in South America. Uh, it was at Kansas, I think, you were doing the trials. What do you actually recall about that experience? Because there were some great collegiate players who took part in those particular games, including uh, Michael Jordan, Chris Mullen, Mark Price, Michael Cage, um, Sam Perkins, Wayman Tisdale, all those sort of guys. So some memories there? Oh, serious memories, great ones. <laughs> the first one is actually meeting Charles Barkley for the first time. Okay. And uh, actually, it was in the Pan Am trials were in Colorado Springs that year. All right. Yeah, Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I remember being on a plane with Milt Wagner uh, and a few other people. It was like a chartered plane uh, leaving Denver, going to Colorado Springs. And this big guy in a suit was on that on the plane. And I remember seeing Charles on TV yeah. a few times. Yeah. Uh, and they were really making jokes about him, calling him the round mound, the rebound and, and the reportage. But his statistics were amazing. And this guy was talking about guards, how he hated guards coming to the basket. These little guys coming into his area, he would break their arm, break their leg or whatever. And I was looking at this guy. I said, he had a suit on. He didn't look like a college basketball player at the time, <laughs> yeah. you know, because we did wear suits when we traveled with our team. But going to the Pan Am trials, if you dressed in jeans or whatever, you know, you didn't have a suit. And I said, oh, this dude probably can't even play basketball. I, I would dunk in his face if I, you know, <laughs> if I ever saw him underneath the basket. <laughs> then we got off the plane, and I realized that he was one of us. <laughs> you know, he was a big, big guy. I mean, heavy, really, you know, kind of fat. And <laughs> I realized that's Charles Barkley. Because <laughs> I never saw him in person. I saw him on TV. Yeah, yeah. Then we, we went and we started to practice. And I remember the first day he broke a guy's arm trying to dunk on him. Oh, wow. And it wasn't a guard. It was a forward guy from Oklahoma or something like that. It was a very talented player. Actually, I never heard anything about that guy after I can't remember his name. And also, Patrick Ewing had came up and tried to dunk on him underneath the basket. And he stood there and just jumped vertically, blocked the shot, and slammed Patrick on his back. And then I realized, I'm not trying to dunk on this guy. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most amazing athlete I'd ever seen with all this weight and all this power and ability to move his body through the air and skill. I'd never seen anything like that, and he was amazing. Funny enough, uh, that night after we played, that first game we played, I'm sitting at a table next to him, and we're talking. And I actually did really well. So he and I were like the talk of the day that first day when we played because no one knew who I was, and he was much more incredible than most people ever thought he could be. But I saw Michael Jordan for the first time there as well. Patrick Ewing for the first time played against these guys. And Mike was – I remember calling uh, a friend of mine, that night because I played well that day and we played a game and I, I talked about Charles Barkley, but I told him, I said, this guy, Michael Jordan is extra special because of the way he thought, you know, when you play against guys, cause 
they put the guards together, they put the big guys together, and then we we had teams, and then we played against each other. It was like two or three practices a day. I can't remember exactly, maybe two. But uh, the workouts were really nice because the guards got a chance to really go against each other. And it seemed that no one could rattle Mike even if he couldn't score. Early on, he struggled a little bit scoring-wise, but he did things that you knew once we started playing five-on-five, he would kill people. And this was when it was two-on-two, three-on-three. And at the time, his ball-handling skills were not at par or at the level that people saw in the NBA. I remember that. And I was a guard. I was a point guard. So when the guards were together and we were doing these one-on-one moves and and two-on-two, three-on-three drills, Michael didn't use ball handling that much. He used his athletic ability, his quickness. He had a great shot to me. I thought he could shoot back then because he had pure, pure form and a nice release. But he wasn't the type of guy to go off you with four dribbles in a half-court set and make a play that that looked really nice at that time. Uh, but when he got the ball, he was efficient and effective and defensively quick as a cat and could, oh, he was hard to contain going to the offensive glass. I remember that. And I told people, I said, man, this guy is amazing. And then when the game started, you saw it. Full <laughs> <laughs> court. You, you actually saw them, saw it. So Mike was impressive. Very, very impressive at the time. John Stockton the next year was a guy who I, I thought was amazing. Yeah, there's some great memories there, and I, I love hearing them. So thanks very much for sharing these. It's much appreciated. Now, in your senior season with Temple, your Owls went 26-5. and five. You made it to the 84 NCAA tournament. And in the first round of the tournament, from what I've read, you hit a one-handed jumper at the buzzer to defeat St. John's, who were led by guys like Chris Mullen, Bill Winnington, and Mark Jackson. So that's a pretty impressive trio, to say the least. And it was Temple's first tournament win since 1958. Can you talk us through that frantic finish and, and what you remember about that play? Well, what I remember was the best free throw shooter in the country was at the free throw line when the score was tied with six seconds to go. Chris Mullen. Yep. In those days, he had the one and one and he missed it. And I was standing behind saying, he's going to miss it. He did it before and he's going to do it again. I was just talking Philadelphia trash, you know, <laughs> because I saw the game about a month and a half before. I think it was Villanova against St. John's where he, or somebody, he was at the free throw line in a clutch situation, and he missed it. And he was like a great free throw shooter, known as the clutch player. But for that shot, he missed it. And I happened to see that on TV. So I just said that right then, and he missed it. <laughs> we got the rebound with like four seconds ago, and coach called a timeout, and we added a half court. And I was known throughout my career for making clutch shots anyway. If I didn't make it, I knew I had a baseball bat waiting for me. That's what John Cheney said in the timeout. <laughs> if you don't make this, I got a baseball bat waiting for you. And you know that. <laughs> so you better make it like you always do. <laughs> so <laughs> I just remember him saying that, and I had a horrible game, I think, that day, and that guard was all over me. For that moment, I remember this the guard from St. John's not being anywhere near me when I caught the ball behind half court to bring it over with four seconds. So I figured I had at least two, maybe three dribbles to take a jump shot. So that's what I did. And I shot a very deep jump shot with nobody in my face for the first time in that whole game because I was under a lot of pressure the entire game. Guys double teamed me under my legs and I didn't play well, and the shot went in. So it was a big shot. I didn't realize how big it was until we were in the locker room and then afterwards. But then a couple of days later, we had to play North Carolina, the number one team in the country. So all the energy was had to come back. Uh, we wasted so much on the St. John's game. I knew it was going to be difficult the next two days. I did all I could to find the, the highlights of that game on YouTube. And unfortunately, that one didn't come up. But yeah, it sounds like an incredible finish. But that leads nicely into what you've just said. The second round matchup, and it was your final college game. You fell 77 to 66 to the college player of the year, the aforementioned Michael Jordan. And 
the North Carolina Tar Heels, and then you went head-to-head with MJ, and you scored 26 points, 18 of which were in the first half, and Jordan had 27. I'll include links to the YouTube highlights of this game in the show notes to this episode. Can you reflect on that last game of your college career and and what you remember most because you were going toe-to-toe with the future, arguably, greatest player of all time? I remember for the first time being tired as hell. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the year before I played at Temple and I set a record for minutes played, 40.5 minutes. They used to call me the Iron Man uh, because I never got a rest and that was only because the coach wouldn't take me out of the games. And that game... I remember going into the game saying, oh, man, I wish we didn't play two days before. That's the first thing I remembered, and I never had that feeling before. Right. When the game started, we knew that we were good. We actually thought that we could beat them, even though they were number one, and they had actually five future NBA draft choices, four of them in the first round on that team. Sam Perkins, Kenny Smith, Matt Darty, and Michael Jordan. We were confident we were going to win, even though most of the guys were retired and uh, excited about the, the fact that we had won our, against St. John's. And, and kind of made history, the resurrection of Temple basketball at that time. That's what they called. Going into Carolina, even though it wasn't in their gym, it was in Charlotte, in the crowd, in everyone hollering, calling Michael Jordan God, <laughs> how much love they had for that team down there. It was a different environment that we'd ever been into. But uh, we played well. I think we had a chance to to win the game. But in the second half, they kind of wore us down with their depth and their strategy, of course, of once they got a lead of more than six or seven points, they went into a, like a stall for the score. And in those days, there wasn't a shot clock, so you could actually slow the game down once you got a lead. And we used that as a tactic many times as well. Even in Wichita State, we did that against Xavier McDaniel when we played them out there. So we knew that uh, it wasn't going to be easy. And it ended up being the last game of my career. So that's something I would never forget. And, of course, against Michael Jordan and company, Sam Perkins and his crew, uh, a great team and a a great Dean Smith. It ended up being like the game that everyone remembers the most uh, when they talk about my career because it's been on highlighting against Michael Jordan. Uh, I don't think it was one of my best games, but it was actually a very important game for us. And it was important because it was in the NCAA and memorable because it was the last. (laughs) There was none after. I think you left the game with you know, a minute or so to go and the crowd and also the North Carolina team congratulated you as you headed off the court. So that was a nice touch. And one thing that stood out to me immediately when I watched it was the fact that you were so athletic and you were quite well matched with Jordan in terms of very similar height and you obviously were very important players for your respective teams as well. So I think that's something that people might not recognize immediately that, yeah, you were such a great and explosive player when you're in college. Yeah, I thought I was uh, talented. I, actually, I was, I, was, I, was, I was blessed. I had a lot of talent, and I worked really hard. And the thing is, I could do a lot of things when I was a player. I could defend. I could pass. I could shoot. I could attack off the dribble. And I understood the game. And I was very athletic. That helped at the size when I was playing one and two in those days. Uh, I think I had a lot of experience as a player because my game came from a lot of people in the past. I watched a lot of older players play. I learned from old players. I learned from old coaches. I always felt that I could get on the court and compete with anyone. And I think most of the guys in my era, we, we actually felt that way. And we, we understood what we were doing when we played as opposed to just playing. Uh, in those days, it was much, much different than now because without a shot clock, we had to think when we played longer than 35 or 40 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes when I was playing in university, we had to hold the ball for like four minutes. So that means you had to learn how to pass and receive and cut and still play even though you knew the only shot you could shoot would be a layup. So you had to take it from the outside. 
and and be able to control the game and think in advance of one minute, think in advance of two minutes, think in advance sometimes of four minutes while you were playing if you're a guard. And I had the ball in my hands a lot, so I had to really understand what was going on with the time and the clock and in the game. Definitely. Now, you were also named the third team All-American by the National Association of Basketball Coaches in 1984, and you appeared on that squad with names like Charles Barkley, who you mentioned before, and a future teammate of yours, Vern Fleming, as well. So I'm guessing that must have been a great accomplishment from your time to round out your college career. Yeah, it was the culmination of a, of a great college career. I, it was something that wasn't expected, like I said, years before, but I actually worked really, really hard. I love basketball so much. And I was fortunate enough to choose the right university where I got a chance to play and improve. And we're on teams and had great teammates and, and learned from everybody in that during that time. Um, at the end, uh, I played in a few all-star games. And what happens is once you play in those all-star games, either your stock increases or it diminishes. And I, I did well. Uh, I played very well in most of the all-star games, made all tournament, which gave me an opportunity to be selected in the NBA. So uh, it was a great career. It was it was something that I was proud of, knowing that I was considered to be one of America's best basketball players at the time when I was young. Yeah, sure. Now, in mid to late April of 1984, there was only about 75 players nationwide who were invited to Indiana University to take part in the Team USA's Olympic trials, and you were one of those guys. What was it like competing for a spot on that 1984 team that would go on to win gold in LA? <laughs> Funny enough, you mentioned it. I didn't want to go. I turned it down first. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I did. I did. I actually turned it down first because um, the year before I was selected for the Pan Am Games, mm -hmm. and that was a surprise, but I had a, a good experience and a bad experience there. The first day, as I mentioned, when I played, uh, we had our first game, and I came off the bench and played very well. I mean, extremely well. Was One of the guys that was talked about compared with Charles Barkley that night. The next game, I only played six minutes in the game. So I, I went from playing 25 minutes to six minutes. So I didn't understand what was going on. So I thought something was crazy was happening. The next game, of course, I didn't play much either. And by the fourth day, I was cut. So I, I didn't understand how a guy could play so well and then play less minutes as time goes on while still playing well and everyone talking about how good of a player you are. Right. All the players. And the same thing I saw happening, in a sense, to Charles Barkley and other guys later. So I figured that... Maybe the team was already selected because the Pan Am team was a great team that I saw. And I just didn't want to go there and, and play well and not get a chance to play in the five-on-five -five games because that was key to me. And then I was summoned in by the coach of the university and got a call from Bobby Knight that you should come. And, of course, I did go. And I was like the last guy there. And plus, I had a problem with my ankle at the time. I had a problem with my ankle from playing so many minutes the year before and kind of twisted it before the NCAA tournament and it wasn't completely healed. So I knew I wasn't 100%. So I spent a lot of time there actually in rehabilitation, icing down my ankles. <laughs> oh, Jay, okay. And, and I probably wasn't even in, I think I remember I wasn't in the, in the official photo because I was in the trainer getting something done on my ankle at the time. But I did play uh, in the practices and played a little bit in the games. And that was a talented group of players. Unbelievable. Very, very talented. Did you watch much of the Olympics in LA during 84? And were you thinking about... Yeah, I did. I watched the guys play. Yeah, I watched those guys play. I, I knew there was a great team. I mean, I played with those guys. Mm. We have actually, you know, being in Philadelphia in the summers at Temple, we played in a college league. And there was also the Baker League in Philly when I was my, my years in university. So professional players from the NBA actually came to Philadelphia and played. So we played against these guys when you're in university. So you know where you are, your level. Mm-hmm. I played against pro players, so I always figured I could play in the NBA right away. There was no question that I knew I could play in the NBA. There was 
maybe just a little bit of weight, a little bit of power and a few things that you had to pick up depending on the team when you played to adapt to. But um, mentally wise, skill wise, athletic ability wise, I knew I could play in the NBA. I knew that by the time I was a sophomore before my junior year, uh, I knew that when I saw those guys, I'd say 60 out of the 75 guys you knew were going to be in the NBA one day. We figured that. We thought that uh, because there was a lot of talented guys there. A lot of them. Yeah, so many. Unbelievable. Incredible uh, array of names when you look back over the list. In the famous 1984 NBA draft, you were selected by the Dallas Mavericks with the 15th pick overall. Did you actually attend the draft or were you watching from somewhere on TV? Well, I didn't. That's one of those experiences and one of those things that I think about now that maybe I should have. Probably wouldn't have been drafted by Dallas, but actually I, I knew I would. I knew the position in the draft. I stayed home in the Philadelphia area so that Temple and the local fans and some family members from the Delaware area could experience a celebration at Temple because we knew I would be selected in the first round. We had uh, been given information that I could be picked 15th, 16th, or 18th. Uh, and the funny thing is the Utah Jazz had called me a couple of days before and asked was I interested in coming. And I was like, are you crazy? Why not? They were afraid because they had drafted Dominique before mm-hmm. and he didn't want to go. So he ended up getting traded to to Atlanta Hawks because he didn't want to go play in Utah. And I was excited. I would love to play for Utah Jazz at the time. Um, but the worst thing that could happen, my agent had told me, was to be selected by the Dallas Mavericks. And I didn't understand that. I was like, come on, that's the, that's the best thing. I'm selected earlier. It's better. He said, no, they don't want you. They're just going to use you to get rid of Billy Garnett, who they don't want. It's the worst thing that could happen. The best case scenario would be to go to the Indiana Pacers because I had visited that team, the only team that I had visited before the draft. I had a great interview. And from my understanding, they loved me. They wanted me really bad. Tommy Newell, who was the general manager of the team, the son of the great late Pete Newell, uh, he had followed my career and knew a lot about me. And I figured that I would probably go 18th if I didn't get selected uh, 15th or 16th. But I was chosen with the 15th pick, and that was it. I visited the Dallas Mavericks and never heard from them again. <laughs> oh, wow. I think a couple of days after the draft, they flew me in, um, talked, and never heard a word from them since. So I was late going to training camp, and a bunch of things ended up happening, and my agent had to get fired. And then I ended up contacting them on my own and made a deal and came in right before the season started, you know, during veterans camp. So it was really not a, not a good situation. Yeah, that's far from how you want to enter the league. Did you have any interaction at all with Dick Motter before the season as he was Dallas's coach at that stage or pretty much you had no contact with the team really after the, the week or so past the draft? I spoke to him the day I arrived and I never forget the first meeting that I had. Unfortunately, it was not a good one. Oh, okay. Uh, I remember him saying... Shaking my hand and said, the stuff is over. Your ass is mine now. Oh, jeez. Never forget that. Wow. I mean, when you, when you respect coaches the way I did and you had great people to teach you basketball the way I did, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. But once practice started, he was a great basketball mind. Unbelievable. And, and that's one of the things that I appreciated about my experience with most of the people I encountered in basketball. If their approach was, was unorthodox, like somebody hollering or screaming, you know, I put that aside and tried to take the information that they were giving me. I remember analyzing every word uh, that this guy said in the information that he was giving us to prepare to play for his team. And he was great. Uh, he was great. <laughs> no question. Uh, the only thing is I, I was really disappointed because I was eager to practice. And then he said, your ass is mine, but you can't practice now until you run the mile like everyone else on the team. So I had my ankles taped, my brand new basketball shoes on. And if you know Dallas, Texas at that time of year, probably 95 degrees outside. 
Hmm. He had the trainer take me outside. And I said, okay, let me get my track shoes. He said, no, do it with basketball series on. So I ran the mile, mad as hell, ended up having the second fastest time running by myself with nobody there. Uh, so that's how I started my NBA practice. It's not a good feeling. That's amazing. I came in and tried to kill everyone in front of me that day. I can imagine. I can imagine. That's quite incredible. So I really appreciate you sharing that sort of stuff because I know you don't have to. But um, I guess when you've come from the background of having Don Casey for a couple of years and then also John Chaney as your coach in college and, and the respect that you had for for John as you left Temple to then be confronted by that sort of experience would obviously be quite jarring to say the least. Um, you mentioned Bill Garnett there. Uh, in October, you were traded from the Mavs to Indiana with Garnett for a 1990 first round pick that turned out to be Travis Mays. After the trade eventually went through, did you get to play many preseason games as a pacer? Um, I actually played my first game in preseason with the Mavericks. Okay, so you did get a couple of games in. It's funny how it happened. You know, this this is crazy. You know, this story is a crazy story. People don't even know this. I don't even know if I've ever told anyone about that. Um, I played my first preseason game. Actually, it was the second preseason game that I suited up for. The first game was supposed to be played against the Philadelphia 76ers in, uh, I think, Fort Worth, Texas, a few days after I arrived against Dr. J. And actually, Charles was on that team. Yeah. And they stopped the game in the middle of the game because of condensation on the floor because Dr. J had fell in the warm-up line. I fell. A bunch of guys had fell because it was so slippery and wet. And when the game started, Dr. J made a move and fell, and they kept playing. Then all of a sudden, Rolando Blackman, who had just signed this new 11-year contract at that time with Dallas, was coming down the sideline. He slipped and had a horrible fall. The owner of Dallas Mavericks got up, grabbed the mic, and said, the game is canceled. Everybody paid. We give you your money back. We don't want any of the players to get hurt. Dr. J fell. They didn't stop the game. Orlando Blackman fell. They stopped the game. I'll never forget that. So I'm sitting there with Sam Perkins looking at the NBA logo on my sleeve, hoping to get in, even though I've only been in the team for a few days. And they stopped the game. So, of course, that was disappointing. A few days later, we end up playing the Indiana Pacers. Oh, okay. Interesting how it turns out. The team that was supposed to draft. Yes. We, we end up playing the Indiana Pacers a few days later in Texas also. I think it was in Fort Worth, Texas or somewhere. And I'm sitting on the bench the entire game. I didn't get in the game oh. until the five minutes to go in the fourth quarter. Dick Mata took all the starters out and the score was tied and put me, Sam, and a few other guys that were there in the game. And I remember I played extremely well. I think I had like 12 points in five minutes and it shot to win the game or put us ahead or something like that. A few days later, I was called into uh, to the coach's room in the hotel after practice was over and said, uh, I got 48 hours to get to Indiana. You've been traded along with Billy Garnett. <laughs> <laughs> so you've gone from the high of you know having a great impact in little time on the court to then finding out you've been traded in a, in a matter of days. Yep. Wow. Exactly. It was, it was uh, whew. Welcome to the NBA. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, very interesting stories before you even actually hit the regular season in your first first season in the uh, NBA. Yeah, I got to the NBA seven days before the regular season started. I remember that. Seven days before the first thing started. So it was really uh, a roller coaster. <laughs> Definitely. And thanks to the, the wonderful basketballreference.com website, where I find a lot of the uh, information out before I chat with guests, I found out that you had an NBA career high of 25 points on 9 of 14 shooting with 7 of 7 from the free throw line in a 125 to 117 home win against the Houston Rockets in just your eighth pro game. They were previously undefeated to that point as well. Do you actually have any recollections of that particular game with the visiting Twin Towers of Ralph Sampson and Akeem Olajuwon? 
I remember, I don't know if it was the eighth game. I think it may have been the seventh because I knew the first game of that season I didn't play. I sat on the bench. Okay. I remember well. I mean, I, some things you, you remember very well. And I remember that because they were undefeated and they were the new up-and-coming team in the NBA that everyone was talking about. And it was the first time that I'd been with the Pacers. I've been there for a few weeks now, almost a month or something, or maybe a month and a half. And the coach played me in the fourth quarter. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> it was like one of the first times I was in the game. And the team had struggled. They had lost so many in a row or whatever. And and, and I was wondering why would I traded here if I'm not playing in the clutch, in money time. And the thing is, when I got interviewed by the Pacers prior to the draft, that's what they talked about the most, my clutch play, my clutch shooting. Uh, I, I looked around and we were losing games and I was sitting there watching. And I'd already made an impact when I arrived in practice. My first day of practice was just like my first day in Dallas. They knew right away. Uh, so I figured I would play. It would take some time. Uh, when, you, when you're when you a basketball player and you, you don't make a team for three years when you're young and then you finally make a team, you know what you have to do to stay on a team. And then your objective is to be in this top five. And once you get there, you don't give that up easily. You fight for it like crazy, especially in those days. And I knew that I had to, to fight to get a position on that team. And I wanted to be in the top five. I wanted to be a starter. So I was fighting very hard and playing really well. In that game, I just took over the game in the clutch. It was it was a nice game for me because I knew that at the end of the game, if I was on the floor, I could play my way. Unfortunately, I got a bad experience after that. We played a couple of nights after, and I, I played maybe a little inconsistent. And the coach said to me, you don't have to score 20-some points for us to win. And I said, well, we've been losing a lot, so somebody has to score at the end of the game. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, yeah. yep. I just said that. And in those days, rookies didn't talk. And I was kind of a quiet guy also. But I just wanted to let him know that I was confident in – you know, rookies are going to be inconsistent, but I was confident. We had we had a young team, though. We had five rookies on that team. We were the youngest team in the NBA, and we had a rookie coach. So we all went through a lot of learning growth period together. So it was an interesting time, though. Yeah. Now, that's George Irvine or Irvin? Irvin, yeah. George Irvin. George Irvin. So how do you think you adjusted to life then as an NBA rookie? You're on a, a losing team fighting for minutes and you just recently starred in the NCAA tournament. So you're coming off a really good high as a college player and then trying to adjust on this sort of whirlwind with the Indiana Pacers. So what did you sort of make of that first season in the league there, Terrence? It's always an adjustment when you're a rookie. And in those days, rookies didn't play much as rookies are getting a lot of – rookies are giving a lot right away uh, now. In those days, we had to earn it. And it was kind of a good – in a bad situation because we were there were so many rookies on that team that you knew they had to play some rookies. But I wasn't in training camp. And the biggest thing back then was when you're a rookie, every coach wants you to be at his training camp so they can kind of like show you how to play uh, in a sense. Back in those days, there were so many talented players that were in the draft that year that played less than me uh, when I went to Indiana. And I actually thought that, okay, when I showed them I could play, that they're going to let me play. But I remember hearing things in the remarks the coach made at times about you weren't in training camp or this is too easy for you. You know, when I played and, and scored 27 points, one of the remarks he made was, oh, the NBA is easy for you. And I just said to him, I'm in ready for the NBA. I played at Temple University <laughs> and I played in the Philadelphia Baker League. Come on. Yeah. You know, it's NBA players there. I mean, you know, whatever. And this is a bad team. So come on. I had to make that comment to him that why should there be a big curve of adjustment just because I wasn't in training camp? And it was hard because I was inconsistent at times. It was the first time being away from home and playing, being alone and playing, and every night playing against the best players in the world. So, And it's the first time I actually ever played on a losing team that actually 
didn't have a winning mentality because they didn't they weren't losers in a negative way. Mm-hmm. They were a, a, a bunch of great guys and, and talented players, but you could see that these guys didn't have confidence in themselves that they could win when they struggled. And I learned from Temple and in John Cheney that the key to success for any basketball team, and especially for a key player, is believing you could win when you struggle. You don't have to play well to win. If you keep thinking you have to play extremely well and play great to win, the odds are against you. What you have to believe is you play well enough till that moment comes. And if you struggle and you have that moment, you have to seize it. And I knew that the head coach didn't have it. We had Donnie Walsh, who was great, and we had Mel Daniels, who understood, and, and of course, uh, Tom Newell. But they had a, a rookie head coach in George Irvine, and he was a hard worker. He knew basketball, but I don't think he believed in the team himself. Uh, you know, so that's that's a problem when you don't do that because you can tell when you're a player when you're playing for someone if he believes that it's possible to be successful. I don't want to focus too much on your slam dunk prowess, but it'd be remiss of me not to mention, of course, that you participated in three consecutive slam dunk contests from '85 through '87, and if I'm not mistaken, you finished third in each of those three events. In 1985, it was held at Marcus Square Arena, which was your home venue and i think the all-star game was the next day at the hoosier dome yeah that's true yeah now from what i've read uh you actually replaced the injured charles barkley is that true and how much notice did you have that you'd be competing in the spot of charles uh that happened uh, rather quickly charles is a great guy actually because of the uh pan am trials you know and we ate together uh, the time that we were there and then the olympic trials after and he got cut and i got cut as well mm-hmm. we kind of at that point, we're like friends when we were younger in the NBA, like most young kids. Uh, when you spend time together that you don't know, when you play well, then automatically you get this bond. When you're practicing well, the players know who the players are. And when he was with Philadelphia uh, and drafted by Philly, that was actually during a time that I had no contract and no contact with the Mavericks, so I was sitting home waiting. So I actually was at the practice of his first, the first time he came to Philadelphia. Okay. I was sitting in the stands at St. Joseph University, and when practice was over, he recognized me. And I said, hey, Charles. And then we went to lunch together. He and my cousin had a nice time talking and, you know, about being in the NBA, being rookies. And his first practice was crazy because he threw the ball in the face of one of those veteran players who tried to take a charge on him, who was a guard, (laughs) (laughs) after he dunked on him. And I I just was laughing so to myself because I was recalling my first experience when I first saw him on the plane. Yeah. Great guy. Yeah. And I don't know exactly whether he was hurt or he didn't want to do the dunk contest, but I, I was told that. Charles Barkley doesn't want to do the dunk contest and you're his replacement. I don't know how I was selected, but maybe it's because I was in Indiana and people had known about my, my ability to dunk, even though there are very few on, that are on YouTube or anywhere that I did dunk a few times and I tried a lot of dunks on people when I played <laughs> and, uh, I could jump. Uh, so people said, let's try him because he's from the Pacers. But people didn't expect much, but I knew something that they didn't. <laughs> exactly right. I'm glad you said that. Now you mentioned it, I think um, when I actually watched the highlights recently of that 85 dunk contest, the commentators were talking about Barkley pulling out for personal reasons, perhaps. He actually mightn't have been injured now, I think about it. Regardless of that, um, one of the great dunks still of all time is your Statue of Liberty dunk. I think you pulled it out with your second dunk in the first round, scored a perfect 50, uh, incredible stuff. What was the origin story to that amazing dunk and it's pretty much shown still every year in highlight reels around all-star weekend that's a special one it goes back to la the first time i ever played on a team okay yeah, when i was 16 and i couldn't make a team in delaware i was in la in the summer and then we had practice uh for the team in that fall i could jump i had like serious vertical leap and it all happened so quickly i went from touching the rim to less than six months later being able to 
to dunk with my elbow at the rim. Crazy stuff. Mm. Freaky story. And I was trying to do the basic Dr. J reverse dunk that I knew from the East Coast, where he would jump off of one leg and then do a reverse 190 and dunk backwards. And that day, I just kept turning in the air and the ball went in. All of my teammates were looking at me like, what the hell is that? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, because it was it was new. It seemed like every week when I played during that period, I jumped higher and did stuff that I never saw before. And sometimes I scared myself and, and just would sit down and wouldn't play that day because I did something that and almost got hurt. But that day when I did that dunk, I kept practicing it and I said, oh, this is a 360, but off of one leg. Because in those days, everyone jumped off of two legs. That's right. And did the 360s because that's all we knew at the time. Uh, and when I put the ball up and turned and tried to do Dr. J's dunk and it went full 360 degrees, I came back to Delaware the next year and I was showing my friends I could dunk and I had tricks. I would drop, throw the ball up in the air. I did all kinds of crazy stuff that I, that I hadn't seen before, but I practiced it in LA. And when I showed my friends that, one of my best friends looked at me and he said, Terry, your dunk looks like the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> and that's how they got the name. So we called it in my neighborhood and with my friends, uh, the Statue of Liberty 360. Love it. And while I was in university, when we had free time, when the coach gave us free time to work, we never really practiced dunking too much. But every now and then the guys would say, let's dunk. And then I would do that. And everybody's like, okay, well, you win. It's over. <laughs> never been in a dunk contest in my life ever. But I had this repertoire of dunks that I could do in practice. Because in those days, you couldn't dunk in a warm-up line in college basketball. You couldn't do it in high school. Dunking was looked upon as a bad thing because it was still not so many years after they had banned dunking. So if you dunk, you wanted to dunk on somebody on a fast break. And believe me, when I got a fast break, I tried all kinds of dunks. <laughs> <laughs> and if someone got in my way, I tried to dunk on them. Oh, that's great. But I knew I could dunk. I knew I could dunk. I knew I had some dunks, but I'd never been in a dunk contest before. Yeah, well, that was awesome to see that Statue of Liberty 360 come out. And you were involved in a dunk off of sorts with Michael Jordan to advance into the semifinals of that 85 dunk contest due to an alleged... And I use the word alleged school board <laughs> malfunction. Um, there was some sort of confusion as to what was happening with the scoreboards, but I think you both advanced into the semifinals anyhow. But what was your take on the whole appearing in front of your Indiana home crowd and then also competing against, obviously, one of the great dunkers of all time, not to mention you know guys like Dominic Wilkins and Clyde Drexler, Jerome Kersey, all those other guys as well? Well, my, my experience that I remember the most from that dunk contest after being selected was being in the locker room with Dr. J, Dominique, Larry Nance. That's right, yeah. Mike and those guys, uh, Clyde Drexler and uh, Daryl Griffin, Dr. Duncanstein. You know, when you're with guys, they start talking, hey, I want to try this, I want to do this. And then in those days, if you missed, it was almost like a penalty. And they wanted to do a dunk where you bounce the ball off the floor. I heard Doc say, yeah, I want to try that, bounce it off the floor and, and then spin around 360 and then catch it. And, but if you miss the ball, you know, guys are saying stuff like that. And I said, oh, my God, they're thinking about missing. I'm like, you can't think about missing if you want to win. <laughs> so I knew I could do that dunk easily. And I also knew I had a 360 off of one leg that nobody really knew about. So I was very confident going in, even though some people may have thought I was nervous. I was really confident. And I was actually happy to be there because I knew that these were the best dunkers in the world. And I had a lot of dunks that I could do. You know, I finished third and that was enough. I was proud. I was Third was like winning. If you're third in the NBA dunk contest and you're a hit of Larry Nance, who was the champion the year before, and you're a hit of Dr. J, who's the greatest dunker in the world, and Clyde Drexler, who was five slamma jamma, then you win just by being there. And being third was good was good for me, even though uh, it wasn't first second. Uh, great memories. Um, the things that you find on a Google search 
a random article came up about a game that took place on December 26, 1985. It was Indiana at Milwaukee. Now, Paul McKeskey, who was considered one of the enforcers of, of sorts in the 1980s, he had to be restrained after he went after you, apparently, following a dead ball foul call. I'll include a photo in the show notes. Do you have any memories of that? I'll tell you why I didn't forget that. That's a funny story. <laughs> I know what happened. Okay, what happened? I know Kung Fu, right? And I'm this little guy. And he, he started something, and I slammed him. I flipped him on his back on the ground, and I stood over top of him after I did it. And then I walked away, then they tried to bring him after me. But it was one of those situations where they were trying to get physical with one of the players. I wasn't playing well. I never played well against Milwaukee anyway, probably not ever, one of those teams. And he was in a situation where he was confronting me, and I had to – Flip him over, and he's so big, I don't know how I did it. I, he was on his back, and I just stood over top of him, and then I walked, and then he came after me. The funny part of it is yeah. it was no big thing because he's a nice guy, a great guy. But when I played in France years later, I'm at a French restaurant on the Champs-Élysées, and a week before, one of our rival teams had signed Paul Kesky <laughs> as the foreigner. Yep. One of our rivals, I mean, like a big rival in the Paris area. So I said, oh, goodness. <laughs> I had to see this guy says that instant. You know, sometimes you think about stuff like that. Yeah. And I'm in a restaurant, and I walk in, and I see Paul. And I think he doesn't know me. You know, I'm not. And he says, hey, Terrence, how you doing? And I'm like, and it's a lady sitting with him. And she's like, I never forgot you. How did you slam my husband as skinny as you are? <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And I was like, oh, sorry. You know, it just happened. We laughed about that, you know. But I don't think he stayed in France long either. I think he got cut too over there. He didn't stay long. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. It was a little altercation where I had to throw the big guy down on his back. The bigger you are, the harder you fall. That's true. That's true. <laughs> He's a nice guy. Yeah, it wasn't long after that that uh, Charles Oakley, I think, got into it with Paul McKeskey at one stage when Oakley was still on the Bulls. So he had a bit of history with uh, a few after-the-whistle incidents. But, yeah, that's a great story to recall. So, um, again, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, they run into him on the Champs Elysees, and then he could jump me in front of everybody. <laughs> he didn't do anything. he didn't do anything though. And your paths crossed finally, but nothing came of it, thankfully. No. Now the Pacers finished the eighty-five season at twenty-two and sixty, and then the following season you improved slightly and won twenty-six games. You averaged about seven points, two rebounds, and two assists in eighteen minutes a game with Indiana over those two seasons. Were you expecting to have an increased role with the Pacers in that second year, Terrence? I did have an increased role. I went to training camp that summer. <laughs> <laughs> I actually played in the summer league with those guys. I was having like 25, something like that in, in, in LA Summer League, and we finished second. I started the season off as a starter. Okay. I was probably the only starter in the first two months of that season to play less than 25 minutes or 26 game, minutes a game as a two-guard. So my role, I knew – at the end of the season, after speaking to the coach, that I would play more. If I was at training camp because I knew the players that we had on the team, mm -hmm. you kind of know who you're playing with and you knew their draft choices that they had once they selected them. I knew right away that I was going to be a star. I knew it, and I started. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, they had already they had selected a, a guy from the Philadelphia 76ers, Clint Richardson, as a veteran two-guard and paid him to come to our team, assuming that he was going to outplay me. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, when he got to training camp, it was so easy to, to to do what I wanted to do against him, just like anyone else, that he couldn't outplay me. Uh, and I love Kurt Richardson, a good player, but no way. <laughs> <laughs> but one day uh, on the plane coming back from Seattle, I remember the coach coming to me, Terrence, we have a problem. Uh, Clint Richardson is not playing well coming off the bench. 
And, you know, we paid him all this money and blah, blah, blah. We traded for him. So, unfortunately, we're going to start him instead of you. And you've been a little bit inconsistent lately, too. So maybe if he gets more minutes as a starter, it helped. And I'm like, we're splitting minutes anyway, and I'm the starter. I was having about 14. He was having about six, I think, at the time. And they put him in the starting lineup. He played a few games well, and then we went up and down. But that's the NBA, and that's one of the things I didn't like because, you know, they didn't have to share that, that kind of information with me. They have the choice to do what the hell they want. But when they tell you stuff like this guy is struggling coming off the bench behind you, my response was he didn't start in Philadelphia either. He came off the bench. <laughs> I know him. I watched him in college. I played against him. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny how the NBA was, you know, and that's one of those experiences that you, you don't forget either. It's not a good one. And uh, I did expect to start. I expected to start the entire season. I expected to be a part of that team. Uh, I hoped that we would win more games. But I had my time, you know. Uh, I had my time. It was different. I did start, you know. So I can say I did start in the NBA for a while. <laughs> it's interesting to hear. Using the word rivalry would be going too far, but to have these sort of little individual battles and to have the perspective that you know that you deserve to be in the league, I think they're sort of things that through some of the, the darker days where you're perhaps struggling as a team to win, you sort of use these sort of things to fire you up a bit to to get into the contest as well. Is that fair to say? Um, no, I don't look at it like that because when I was in the NBA, I was I was proud to be on the team. Mm-hmm. And when I played basketball, I competed anyway. We went out there to compete. doesn't matter who's in front of you. The guys were great. I was fortunate enough to play on teams where we had no egos. We had no problems of players or problems against the coaches. They were guys were very disciplined, very dedicated, very committed, really wonderful people on, on the teams that I played, two teams that I played with in the, in the NBA. I never looked at any of my teammates in any other way other than these guys are here and I hope that they can contribute to the success of the team. But you want to be a starter, so you compete for that position. If the guy's in it, you want to try to play well enough where you have an opportunity to play and, and take that position away. If your role is defined, then you have to accept your role and, and deal with it. And that was the first time, though, I must admit, uh, in the NBA that I was on a team or playing basketball where my role wasn't defined. I wasn't told what my role would be. I had to assume what it was going to be on my own. And in my mind, I wanted to be a starter <laughs> from the moment I stepped in there when they said they wanted me and they traded for me. And then I wasn't told anything until changes were made. Yeah, oh, that makes sense. Um, I'll briefly ask about the 1986 dunk competition in Dallas. Spud Webb would win, probably the crowd favorite, of course, as well, uh, being at five foot seven. But again, you had some great jams aside from the Statue of Liberty. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you invited your brother out onto the court mm-hmm. and you had him sit on a chair and leaped over him and another guy who was kneeling down for the dunk. Can you talk us through that particular jam? When I was in the NBA, I was the first Delaware player ever to, to be drafted and play in the NBA. So I told my friends, I'm here, you're here. <laughs> <laughs> if you come to a game, I'll get you attention. Uh, when I practiced with the team in Indiana and the people that ran the gym and my brother came to town, my friends, I would say, let them come on the floor and shoot because I like to be around them. This is my family. I was so far away from home. And fortunately, uh, the first year in Indianapolis, when I was in a dunk off, my brother and my cousin and some friends were, were down there. And I, I said, okay, let me give them some attention. They're going to tell me what to do because they know all the dunks. <laughs> At the time, I couldn't think. Something happened. I was blank. So I ran to them. The next year, when I was in Dallas, my brother was there and a, and a good friend of mine's son, Chad Whelan, was there. His, his father was a friend. So I, I invited those guys there. And I just figured, okay, when props came up, I can use a prop, but I'm going to invite people in too. That's all. And in those days, that was different. People didn't do that. I just wanted everyone to feel as though they were a part of the the event. And I never jumped over a chair before in my life, never jumped over anyone in my life. It was the first time. So 
it was all new. <laughs> and of course, the NBA stopped that right away. <laughs> <laughs> a little dangerous, perhaps. I think Gerald Wilkins also jumped over a chair as well. He did the cheer first. Without anybody on it. But I did the cheer with someone in the cheer. I had to jump higher. And longer. <laughs> so, you know, they didn't give me credit for that. <laughs> and so in 1985, then, when you ran down the other end of the court and chatted to those two guys, one of them actually motioned to what sort of dunk he wanted you to do. Was that your brother? Yeah, that's my brother, Lawrence, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Now, moving on, in October of 1986, the Pacers traded you and a guy named Russ... Shane? Russ Shaney. Russ Shaney, yeah. Shaney, there mm-hmm. you go, to Seattle for John Long and a future second-round draft pick, I think, in 1993. Uh, what was your reaction of hearing the trade and, and leaving Indiana to then take up residence in Seattle? One of those NBA stories that's, that's okay. It's not so bad. At the end of the second year, we had what they call a mini camp in Indiana when they brought in a new coach. Um, they brought in... Uh, Jack Ramsey. Dr. Jack Ramsey. Actually, a Philadelphia guy, you know? Yeah. This is the first time I ever felt comfortable around a coach in the NBA because it was only for a short period of time. And he just grabbed me to the side and he spoke to every player. And he said, Terrence, after that minicamp was over, you're the best two guard on the team. Matter of fact, I think you're the best guard we have on the team. We will keep you if I can't find a veteran two guard to trade for you with playoff experience. And then you won't have to worry about your minutes going up and down. I remember him saying that to me. Right. And I don't know why he said it to me. He didn't have to. But I guess he looked at the statistics during the season and he, he talked to the management, the assistant coaches who were there. And everybody thought that I was going to be a pacer for like 16 years. I remember hearing people saying that when I came in, you're going to be a pacer for life. I did a lot of things in the community. I was always at practice an hour and a half early. First guy there all the time. Last guy leaving. Always working on my game because I had nothing to do. I was there in Indiana in the gym. And when Jack Ramsey came, he knew all these things, but he just told me, I want a playoff experience two guard to lead my team, even though you're very talented. And I said, okay. So I went home. And then when training camp started for us, the veterans, I came back to Indiana, drove from Philadelphia, from Delaware, actually, and uh, went to check into my hotel. And when I got there, they asked me to call the front office. You know, when that happens, you know what's going on. (laughs) Because the team never calls you, the management doesn't call you. But it's funny because seven days or something like that before, I saw on CNN at the time that John Long, was traded to the Seattle Supersonics from the Detroit Pistons, but Seattle told him not to come. I think that was somewhere on the news or or someone had told me that. So here's a guy who was traded from Detroit to Seattle, but they told him don't come. And Tom Newell, Pete Newell's son, was our general manager for my first two years. He was the guy that brought me in the trade. He was the guy who interviewed me when I was in university. And I remember him saying to me at the end of the first year that he didn't like how I was being used by the coaching staff. And in the second year, he was really upset and he used to whisper things to me every now and then when I saw him because he was rarely, he was around, but not so often. And he said, don't worry about it. I'll get you out of here. So when I got to the um, hotel, I called the Pacers for an office. They told me I was traded to Seattle. I got 48 hours to get there. (laughs) (laughs) It's certainly a business. My car is in, I don't know what it is, South, I don't know, what was the name of that town? South Bend, Indiana, I don't know where it is, but it was where Purdue University was. I can't remember. So I drive back to Indianapolis, pack a bag, couple bags, leave my car at the airport, call my brother and says, my car keys are under the, the mat, the car is wide open. <laughs> Come to my hotel, arrange everything, drive my car across country and bring it to me, whatever you can. <laughs> it was so crazy. And I got to the airport in Seattle. And then I landed and had contacted the basketball office. And who's standing in front of me? Tom Newell, the ex-general manager of Indiana Pacers. T-Bones, I got you here. 
And I look like, what the hell are you doing here? I'm the assistant coach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's great. You know, it, it was it was a really nice feeling for the first time in the NBA, uh, knowing that there was someone that you had seen a couple of years before who really had no control over how you played, but now might have some control over it and believed in your game and your skill and, and your talent. But unfortunately, uh, that year, Seattle actually had traded, brought in, I think, seven or eight new guys. Mm-hmm. And Dale Ellis came in from from Dallas, who I actually met when I was with the, the Mavericks a couple of years before. And Dale wasn't playing at all with Dallas. And I remember in a couple of practice when I played there, Mark Aguirre and Dale actually were one of the two guys that saw me and said, man, this guy's good. Mark Aguirre grabbed me right away and said, you my rookie, my first day of practice with the, with the Mavericks. I remember that. And I saw Dale. I knew he was an All-American in college at the forward, but he was out of position in Dallas because they had Jay Vincent and they had Mark Aguirre, who were very talented in that position. Yes. And Dale didn't have the type of game either of those guys had. And the way Dick Miller was playing, Dale was just like a catch-and-shoot guy, and he was a great shooter, but he didn't have the ball-handling ability and the post-up moves that, that Vincent and, and Mark McGuire had. I saw that right away in like a couple of days of practicing with the Mavericks, that he wasn't going to play much. When he came to us, uh, he was kind of like a enigma, but we had a great coach, Bernie Bickerstaff, and he knew how to use his players. He was an amazing coach. He, he, knew how to, he knew how to play guys who had talent. And Dale, he just let him loose with the skills that he had and the players that he brought in that year, he built a great team. He did. I didn't play much, and it was the first time I was really happy in the NBA because I wasn't on a losing team. I hated losing. It felt terrible. <laughs> it was really bad. So I, I enjoyed not playing as much in, in, in Seattle and actually being around a winning team as opposed to even sometimes starting on a losing team and then sometimes not playing at all on a losing team. <laughs> Understood. And uh, coincidentally, Dale Ellis was the most recent guest on the podcast in episode 57. So uh, he was a great guy to chat with as well. So some interesting stories from him too. I got a story about a guy. I don't know if you ever heard of a guy. Dwayne McLean. Yeah, Dwayne McLean. Definitely the D-Train. He was nicknamed here. Yeah, I thought you was going to ask me about the D-Train because he was my teammate with the Pacers. He's from Villanova. <laughs> he actually came to France and got cut <laughs> after like three games. <laughs> I'm more than happy just to quickly ask you about Dwayne because I saw his name on the roster there and I know he was briefly in the league. He was funny. D-Train oh, in Indiana. Oh, my goodness. He and Billy Martin, when they came in as rookies, these guys were something else. <laughs> That's excellent. So... <laughs> He starred here in the National Basketball League in Australia, uh, primarily with the Sydney Kings. But of course, he was a star. He played very well in the NCAA. I think he was one of the key players on Villanova's team. Yeah, 1985 team. Yeah, he shot very well from the floor, key player that year. And then he was drafted by us in the second round. And he came in 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 between it because he wasn't a two and he wasn't really a three. So I think he played a lot that second year also, the year that I started in the beginning and then went to the bench. He didn't find his niche in the NBA, but I thought he was going to be a talented player in Europe. And he, I heard he was in Australia, and then I met him years later when he came to France. But he didn't last long in France because in France, you had to be able to put it up. You had to put the numbers up, and you had to win. <laughs> and the team he went to was a, a very, very talented team. Very talented. Yeah, it sounds like it was very competitive over there uh, at oh. that time. So I can imagine it would be hard to, to find somewhere that you could stay for a good period of time. But he certainly was a, a big-time star here in the National Basketball League in Australia. So it's interesting that um, your paths did cross whilst you were there. I think it was in the 1986 season. Yeah, your second season? Yeah, my second season. I actually ran into him and Vern Fleming. Vern Fleming came to France and got cut. Oh, right. <laughs> I didn't know that. There you go. So. Vern, well, he was on that All-American third team 
yeah. in 84 that you were named to by the coaches. He also might have been one of the guys that participated in the Pan Am trials. I can't actually recall. I'm trying to think. Was Vern at the Pan Am Games? He may have been. He made the Olympic team. He did very well by taking home the gold. And John Stockton was my roommate at the Olympic trials. Oh, okay. Right, yeah. Great player who was drafted 16th. You mentioned about how Utah were possibly going to consider drafting you. So it was interesting that the very next pick in the draft would be John Stockton. And that's funny because he was my roommate at the Olympic trials and he was worrying about not being selected in the draft. And I said, man, you're crazy. <laughs> I said, I know good players. I play against them all the time. You're amazing. And Utah had actually contacted me for the draft. And then when I wasn't selected and I saw him selected after me, I was happy. I was like, they got him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's great because I think he made it to about the last 18 or 20 players in the Olympic trials before finally getting cut and just missing out on the final selection. He was amazing. I mean, he was was so talented. Great player. Oh, my goodness. Perfect, perfect player. Now, in that 87 season, the Sonics went 39 and 43 and made it to the Western Conference Finals behind the stellar play of Dale Ellis, of course, uh, Xavier McDaniel, Tom Chambers, and, and among others. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, your last game with the team was in late February of 87, so it's a bit bittersweet, I guess, uh, as you just mentioned and alluded to. You've almost answered the question anyhow, but from your, your perspective, how did your time in Seattle sort of come to an end, and, and what did you think once you played your final game with them? Well, it came to an end actually before my final game because I, I got hurt in Cleveland. Uh, actually, it was Dale. <laughs> was it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's funny. You know, Dale's a great player, nice guy. Um, we were we were supposed to practice in the Richfield Coliseum that morning before a game against the Cavs. The gym was not available, so we practiced in a YMCA, a local YMCA. These little cramped up small gyms in a cement wall right behind the basket. And I stole the ball, running on a fast break, and Dale actually from behind clipped me by accident, hit my foot, and I ran into the wall and almost broke my neck, my back. And it was it was a horrible situation. Terrible. But I still tried to practice and play afterwards, even though bones in my back were were jolted around, and my ribs were messed up. Uh I think I may have tried to play one or two more games after that. And then I was put on injury reserve for the rest of that season. Uh and after that, when I came back from training camp, it was a few personal things in the injury. My back wasn't completely healed. I had a son who had just died. He was 16 months old. And I wasn't really into basketball. Uh, and it kept me on the team the entire preseason, even though I really didn't want to be there. I wasn't really there mentally or physically. Uh, and then I was released uh, at the end of training camp instead of traded. I was hoping they would probably trade me somewhere closer to the East Coast or to a home, but it didn't happen. Well, first of all, I'm terribly sorry to hear about that. I didn't actually know that about your son there. So sincere feel for, for what happened there, of course. Um, how close were you actually to making a roster then in the 88 season or, or going forwards before we actually chat about your transition where you went to head overseas and play professionally in Europe? The season that started from 87 to 88 was the season where I was traded in training camp. I didn't even get a chance to play in any of your games in the season. I didn't play that much in training camp. That was the first time that it, as a pro that I didn't, when I was in training camp, I didn't play much at all. So I knew, you kind of know when you're in training camp that uh, situations are changing when you're not even playing in the preseason games. And I was hurt also at the time, just had the loss. So I didn't think I was going to get cut. I didn't think I was going to get I just knew that I wouldn't be a key player and I wasn't completely healthy. But I was hoping to be traded. Um, in the end, when I was cut, I just stopped playing for a few months and didn't want to play at all. Then I kind of got healthy and I started to watch college basketball because the college basketball season was being played, I think. Yeah. 
I was at a St. Joe's game and I ran into a, a, a veteran coach, Villanova's coach, Roland Massimino. Mm-hmm. And he asked me, what was I doing there? Because in those days, all the information wasn't broadcast or publicized all over the place. I think it may have been a small article that I was released. And a lot of people didn't even know that until they saw me showing up at, at college games and they didn't see me on TV with the Sonics. And he gave me a couple of numbers to call about going to Europe. If you want to play in Europe now, it's, it's a good option. I'd heard about that after a couple of years in the NBA. My rights were for a CBA team in Wyoming, and my agent kept calling me, begging me to play, and I didn't want to play in the CBA. So finally I said, okay, after I went to a game, I want to play. And I was told that I had to go to Casper, Wyoming to play. <laughs> That's in the middle of nowhere. Maybe like you're out back in, in, in Australia <laughs> if you've never been there before. <laughs> uh, so I actually went there, and it was actually a good team, a first-place team in the league, coached by ex-NBA player Cassie Russell. Hi, yeah. Strange, strange. <laughs> and uh, I was there for a few weeks, and I, I decided right away after like the third day that I didn't belong in the CBA. A couple of NBA teams had inquired about me, and I wanted to go back to the NBA, and I figured I'd be there for like a month, and then I'd be in the NBA. I played really well in the CBA. But uh, unfortunately, it seemed that that team was more worried about being champions of the CBA instead of letting his talented players go to the NBA. So I decided to leave. I just left and uh, called the, uh, the number of a president in Europe. And luckily for me, a week before, their best player in the country, an American guy, ex-NBA player who I played against, had, had hurt his Achilles. And they, they, looked for it. they were looking for a new American player to replace him. And that was in the Netherlands. And that was Paul Thompson. He used to play with Milwaukee Bucks, Philadelphia 76ers, I think, in Cleveland before that. And I ended up playing for that team in January of 1988 till May. And that was the beginning of the odyssey of Europe. And it's a fantastic uh, story as well, the fact that your career completely sort of transitioned to go from the USA to over in Europe. And researching for our chat today, I learned that you achieved many honors and you played probably the best part of 10 seasons or thereabouts in places like, as you said, uh, Holland, Belgium, uh, France particularly, where you are right now as we're chatting, uh, to name a few. So you had great longevity in Europe once your American-based career had come to an end. Can you sort of talk about the experience of playing professionally in Europe and how it compared to the US game and, and what sort of things that you actually did achieve over there? Because you had some great things that you've got uh, against your name there. It's a, it's a wonderful experience at that time. Um, the first thing that happened, they had to become an amateur again because they had crazy rules where once you played in the NBA, you were professional and everywhere else in the world is amateur, which is strange. They changed that in 92. So four years later after I, I was there, you, you changed the rules. So that was one of the main reasons why I didn't go back to the NBA because if I went back to the NBA, I would be considered a professional again. And you can't, you couldn't change twice. So that meant if I went to a team and got released or got hurt, then my career would be over for good. Oh, okay. So I stayed in Europe. Uh, Den Boss in the Netherlands was, was, was the best experience you could have. They had about four or five guys who played college ball in the States who were Dutch in university, spoke English, USA every morning in practice. A great coach was ex national team player. Uh, The team was considered to be like the Boston Celtics of the Netherlands, champions, great tradition, great history. Mm -hmm. One of the top eight teams in Europe at the time playing in the Cup of Champions. And we traveled all over. We went to Israel. We went to we went to Greece. We went to France to play. And it gives me an opportunity to see basketball outside of America at the highest level because we were one of the top teams. And a lot of the players that I had played against in university and some guys who had gotten released from NBA teams in the past were in Europe. And I realized that 
this is the alternative to the NBA, not the CBA. And you were actually respected. You were given the responsibility that no NBA team could ever give. In those days, it was so difficult to stay on a team. If the team lost or you played bad, they fired you. They didn't care who you were. If you had NBA written on your chest and you came to a top team in France and you lost three games in a row and you didn't get your 25 points, or even if you got 30 points and you lost four games in a row, they fired you. So that was the ultimate challenge for me as a basketball player. Guaranteed contract didn't mean anything. Where you were drafted didn't mean anything. How much money you made compared to your teammates didn't mean a thing. You had to help your team win. You had to produce as an individual and be a good teammate. And that meant you were successful. If not, you got fired. And a lot of good players got fired. And some came back and went to other teams. But I can say that when I prior before my injury and my old career in Europe, I never got fired. And in those days, I remember the first three years, it took me three years before I, my teams lost two games in a row because I was afraid we can't <laughs> lose. <laughs> that sounds like they were fairly ruthless over there. No, it was just a different way of, of working. In the NBA, if you had a guaranteed contract and you were like the number two or number three pick and you had a guaranteed contract in those days and you were a starter team, you could play like, excuse my French, really bad, like shit. Uh, <laughs> and nobody said anything until it was time to renegotiate your contract or trade deadline time. In Europe, I remember the general managers and, and the fans, they're in your face if you struggle. I mean, I didn't have that problem early on, but I saw how it was. I didn't like it, but I knew that I got 40 minutes to prove that I was good enough to help this team win when you were considered a foreigner. Mm -hmm. And you have to do something to stay, win, be a good teammate, and produce. And that's what professional basketball for me was all about. Also, um, in the early 1990s, of course, we're leading up to the 92 Olympic Games in Barcelona. Whereabouts were you based at that time, of course, with all the hype of the Dream Team, professionals playing in the basketball tournament for the first time? Sort of how was that? Uh, that build up to the Olympics and, and the part that the European players would actually play in those Olympics? That was a great time for me because the NBA actually started to open its doors to really respect Europe. I was in France at the time and playing very well and kind of adapting and figured that France would be the place that I would probably finish my career and wouldn't last much longer because I was starting to, to get, I was like 30 around that time, 31. And uh, I remember the hype. I remember everyone recognizing more than just the Los Angeles Lakers, the Boston Celtics, or the beginning of the Chicago Bulls era. I remember that. NBA basketball was becoming very popular all over the world. And I was actually doing some stuff promoting basketball in France and working with the NBA with three-on-three tournaments with Adidas uh, and staying in Europe longer instead of going straight home after the summers at that time. That was a great time for basketball all over the world. And people started to recognize European players as well in America. It was a special moment. From what I understand, you also, and you've alluded to it just a moment ago, you helped develop the sport of basketball in Europe and then later in your playing career when you had a few injury concerns, you became increasingly interested in the coaching side of things. After you retired as a player, you were heavily involved with coaching. How do you compare the thrill of the on-court competition to watching the game and coaching from the sidelines? Well, as a player in my free time when I got to Europe, one thing that I realized that we had a, a major responsibility with our club as a foreign player, we were expected to do so many things. In, in Europe, they had youth teams that were closely connected to professional teams. The kids were always around us. Uh, we actually watched their games sometime. And every top uh, European club 
always has talented youth players that are, are there. And the objective is to produce professional players from your youth organizations, which is different in America. So I would always in my free time give practices with the young players, uh, go to schools and give uh, clinics for the kids to make basketball become more popular and, of course, have more fans come to watch us play. It was something that I always did. And I always did camps and clinics when I was in university as well. Uh, when I got to France, I was able to to do it on a larger scale by going to different cities and doing three-on-three tournaments, promoting basketball. I got into coaching by accident once I got hurt and then was thrust into coaching uh, the team that I was playing for, which was the top team with actually some great players. Michael Brooks, who was the captain of the Olympic team in 1980. Asia English, uh, a guy from my hometown who was a player from the Washington Bullets. And Mustafa Sunko, who was the uh, silver medalist starting point guard on the French national team who played in Malaga and finished his career in Real Madrid. I actually coached those guys. Uh, my first job as a coach. Uh, and it was a nice experience because uh, I had to step back and try to find a way to help these guys become the best players they could be mm-hmm. and not include myself in the process. And that was a good thing for me at the time. I actually could step away from that and look and watch other players enjoy them play and hopefully – uh, help them become consistent. That was the best thing that I, that I got out of that experience, being able to step away from it and enjoy watching other players do their thing. And I always loved watching basketball. I always wa- loved watching other players. Uh, and I loved watching more when I was a coach because you can actually sit there and enjoy when people play well. Yeah, true. Now, uh, just a couple more quick questions, if you don't mind. You've been very generous with your time today, and I appreciate we've talked a lot longer than I anticipated, and it's been fantastic. So thanks for for allowing me to chat with you for this amount of time. Um, Basketball Digest, back in the day, they had a regular feature, which was titled The Game I'll Never Forget. Is there a particular game at all, a single game from your career, which comes to mind, either as a player or when you were coaching? Oh, game I'll never forget. Uh, I guess... If I were to say a game I'll never forget would be a game in, in Europe, uh, as a pro, probably, uh, a game in high school I never forget would be, yeah, I have, I have a few of, of games in high school, pro and university. My game that I'd never forget and everyone else probably has. <laughs> as long as you remember it, that's the main thing. As long as you remember it's probably, uh, playing in a small town in the north of France called Berk, uh, against uh, a guy named Curry Scurry, who played with the Utah Jazz, actually in maybe 86. And we were down, oh, I think, like 16 points or four minutes to go, and they were laughing at us in a timeout on the road. And I remember being so upset that I told my teammates, we're not going to win this game, and scoring like 25 points in four minutes to force the game into overtime, and then fouling out with one minute in overtime. And then my teammates won the game without me, which was great. Oh, nice. That's a game I'll never forget. That's awesome. I didn't expect to hear that. That's really good. I, I love it when uh, you dig deep into the memory banks and something like that comes out. So, yeah, good to hear. Um, you're a member of numerous Hall of Fames, a few of which I mentioned in the introduction. Uh, what does it mean to you personally to be recognized for your contributions to the game, Terence? Oof. I don't know if it's my contributions to the game that I'm recognized for. I, I just think maybe the time that I played uh, – some things happened that were probably recorded and then they get recognized. Uh, I never saw myself as, as someone extraordinary special when it comes to basketball. I just saw myself as one of the guys that was competing. I loved the game of basketball so much. I just wanted to be able to make a team. That was my primary objective. And then after that, I just wanted to be the best basketball player I could be. Uh, I didn't look at myself as competing against someone else to be better than him. 
I competed to be in a position to be one of the key players on the team. I tried to help others play well that were my teammates and help others become better players who are interested in playing basketball. And that's my contribution to the game. All this Hall of Fame stuff, you don't think about that when you play. And when it happens, you're, you're really surprised by it. But if you look back and you say, well, OK, then your name stands out in a certain sense. And Delaware, of course, being the first Delawarean to make the NBA at Temple, leaving there as the all-time leading scorer, uh, and then eventually uh, playing in Europe and in France and the success that I had over there with the teams. I got the recognition that probably was not expected, but maybe deserved. Great answer. And I echo those sentiments. I did a fair bit of research prior to our chat today and looking through uh, the Temple University record books, which I found online, your name is scattered amongst a lot of different records. And as you said, you mentioned you left the team as the all-time leading scorer at that stage. Uh, did a lot of things there as well. And of course, did some great things in Europe. And that's where you're based at the moment. So we're now midway through 2015. You're in Paris as we speak. Uh, what's your involvement with the game of basketball today? Um, actually, I'm giving clinics and lectures um, on basketball, a little bit of scouting, not coaching now, took the year off, mm-hmm. um, preparing to go to Italy uh, for a, a basketball camp that's 28 years old, uh, Falgaria basketball camp. It's one of the longest running basketball camps in Europe for Italian kids, probably the best basketball camp I've ever seen, actually, because you don't have to be a superstar to enjoy yourself there, And which this is one of the things that I enjoy the most. A lot today, basketball is based on looking for the next NBA player, the next star, whether it's at the professional level or someone looking for him at the college level to play for their team. When there are so many kids who love basketball who just play to play, and then some become talented players, some become great players, and very few have an opportunity to play professionally. This camp is a camp, vacation camp for kids who play basketball. The coaches that come there are like 25 Italian coaches who love basketball. Right. No one's there looking for the next star. They're there to make sure the kids leave after seven days with something that they can take back to that club or to help them become a better player during the season that they play. And we have a wonderful time with great Italian food in the mountains, doing so many things other than basketball after the basketball time is over that the kids cry when they leave. Once you go, you always come back. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, no doubt. It sounds very idyllic. Uh, Sounds great. Um, do you have any ambitions at all to return to the USA and maybe work within some NBA team or in any respect? Uh, actually, no. My time has passed as, as far as being, I think, a, a coach or something with an NBA team. Scouting and, and uh, giving lectures and clinics and basketball is what I'll probably do until I can't. Uh, I think there's a new generation of, of, of coaches in the States and, and with all the talented players that have played in the last 20 years and these guys finishing their careers looking to step into the coaching side. The doors are open to them. I'll, I'll stay mainly focused in Europe and work in scouting, in, in lectures, in clinics, in basketball in the future. I'm happy with that. That's great to hear. And one last question. I do like to ask my guests about the number choice that they wore on their jersey throughout their careers. In college, you had number 43. In the NBA, you had 43. And I think you wore 44 as well. Mm-hmm. What was the actual relevance of those jersey numbers, if you don't mind my asking? There was a relevance for 43. That was my vertical leap in high school. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> That's great. And, and four and three is seven, which is luck for me. <laughs> and three times seven is 20, but I ended up being third in the dunk contest three times. So oh, I love it. Uh, in Europe, it was 14 because in those days, the Americans were always, or the foreigners were the last guys to be announced. So they were like the number 14 and number 15. Now they go to 23 and other numbers as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I came 
they said you had that 14 or 15. I said, well, I have to have 14 because that's two times seven and four and three is seven. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. I had 14 for the most part, except for one time, may have had four and six, but uh, I love to hear that sort of stuff. So (laughs) thanks for uh, sharing. We're superstitious, trust me. I, I had mine. We were. <laughs> no, that's very good. It's uh, good to get an insight into the thinking department there. So, yeah, thank you. Now, Terence, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today. Uh, I really thank you for taking this much time to speak with me and make the uh, opportunity happen. Adam Ryan, thank you very much for contacting me. It's a pleasure anytime. Really a pleasure. Nice to talk to you down under. Thanks, Terence. Okay, take it easy. Have a nice time, Adam. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. You can suggest topics or guests that you'd like to hear conversations with. Leave a voicemail. Simply visit inallanders.com slash voice. Click start recording. Leave a message and press stop. You can even listen back before you submit. Press send and you're done. If you add a podcast review, I'd love to read it out in a future episode of the show. You can add your podcast review by visiting inallanders.com slash review. Your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways to support the podcast. If you enjoy the show, then please tell your basketball-loving friends about it. Word-of-mouth recommendations are certainly worth their weight in gold. You can subscribe to my show in various ways. iTunes, visit inallanders.com slash review. Add it to your Stitcher playlist, inallanders.com slash Stitcher. You can also subscribe on Pocket Casts, Player FM, TuneIn Radio, and other podcatchers. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.